Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books Network. I am your host, Stephen Sakevich. In this episode, I will be interviewing Andrew Monahan, and we will be discussing the book, The Sea in Russian Strategy, that he co-edited with Richard Connolly. It was published by Manchester University Press in 2023. Andrew Monahan is an academic visitor at St. Anthony's College in Oxford and a senior research fellow in the Russia and Eurasia's program at the Royal Institute of International Affairs, Chatham House. He is also a senior associate fellow at the Royal United Service Institute, RUSI, in London, and a global fellow at the Wilson Center's Kennan Institute. Andrew uh, Monaghan, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you, Stephen. Pleasure to join you. Thank you for having me. I think this is our second interview uh, together, is it not? It is, yes. You were kind enough to to host a discussion on uh, on a previous book I did on on Russian grand strategy in in the era of great power competition. Yes, and uh, this is almost like a like a good uh, supplement to that book uh, as well, although it focuses more on the uh, the naval aspects. Yes, I mean, it, it, I mean, informally you won't see it on on the covers, a sort of volume, you know, volume two. But this is it, it's designed in many ways to be read independently, of course, on its own. But but it really works with the first one too. Yes, that 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 sense of of Russian grand strategy and how we get into interpreting Russian strategy, what are the priorities and the problems, what are the plans and the implementation. What are the strengths and the weaknesses, and and so on? Uh, also, I have to say, hope hopefully tracking something of a trajectory. So while the while the work doesn't really focus particularly on history, we get this sense of history leading us through the present, build, building us into the present, and and maybe offering us a, a horizon into the future too. Yes, we definitely will have a very interesting discussion. Uh, as you may remember from last time, we always like to begin by asking our guests. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and what's the backstory behind writing this book. Well, my my position these days, I think, is uh, is is much the same as it was when we first met. I, I'm a I'm now a global fellow with the Wilson Centre. I'm also an associate at the Royal United Services Institute in, in London. Most of my work tends to balance between. Let's call it academic style research or, or research and, and and public policy discussion. So so I kind of balance between the two between the two worlds of 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 academia and public policy, and and really my focus as 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 we've spoken about and as we'll speak about today is on Russian grand strategy and 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 interpreting the trajectory of Russian Russian power, and that's really where the the, the book the idea for the book came from. It emerged. Uh, it, it emerged from discussions we were having in in the mid 2010s about about Russian strategy, about where was Russia going, about different aspects of of Russian power. How do we interpret Russian power? Uh, and at the time, while there was a discussion of grand strategy, there was also a bit of a debate about whether there was a fourth battle of the Atlantic underway. And I thought this was really interesting. So we had we had a number of U.S. senior U.S. officers and Royal Navy officers, NATO officers, also talking about this this fourth battle of the Atlantic. So we looked into it in terms of we we ran a conference uh, towards the end of last or towards the late 2010s on on Russian sea power. We managed to get together some of the really the leading the leading people in the field. And, and it was an excellent conference, so we thought we would take it into to, to pre- preparing and, and organizing a book, which is which is what we've done. Um, we were struck when we organized it that almost nothing has been done on Russian sea power and maritime or maritime power since the end of the Cold War. So in many ways, the book is is framed, if you will, as a as a reintroduction to what this means. I mean, we've we've got. Uh, I, I think it's important because we've a complete reversal in our understanding of Russian sea power in, in a decade. We've gone from from a position of very low uh, low standing, very easy to to ignore, perhaps from a Western European and Atlantic point of view, to actually um, a fairly substantive role in the war that's underway at the moment between between Russia and Ukraine, and and a fairly substantive concern also amongst amongst NATO about about Russian naval power. 
Um, so, so that's really where the book that where the book came from, and uh, and the war has has I think has emphasised the, these questions uh, all the more. From my point of view, it opens up these big questions, as I say, on how we interpret Russian power, um, and hopefully we'll come to this a bit later. The traditions of seeing Russia as a land power, or you know, how do we interpret that looking forward to the end of this decade? So that's that's where the book came from, a position of trying to find interpretations of of power and power and strategy. Yeah, I was really deeply impressed by the uh, the different contributors you were able to get for this book. Many of the names I, I recognize in the in the field. Now, uh, yes. Ru- oh, sorry. Go sorry. On. No, I was just going to say we had we, we were lucky with with the conference. Um, we, we were able to bring together really uh, some some very senior policymakers and some very senior academics. Unfortunately, not all of them were able to contribute to the book, but but the majority uh, were able to contribute, and that's really what why we wanted to try and make a bit of a, a, a statement with the book to get people like like Professor Till and Professor Lambert, and also some of the leading um, others like uh, Mike Kaufman, Mike Peterson. Um, we also built in some some policymakers, so people who have commanded ships and commanded uh, other other. Um, naval uh, naval units as well so so it's it, it's an interesting balance from my point of view trying to edit it between academic research and public policy yeah no it's really important especially even with the growing need for interdisciplinary studies now growing in academia in general now you mentioned a, an interesting point and that'll be part of my next question is russia has always been traditionally seen as a land power that's where its main focus is. But yet, what role has Navy or sea power played in Russian history? Because Russia is the biggest country in the world, and it has navies that can go on both the Atlantic, the Baltic, the Black Sea, the potentially the Mediterranean if the Turks allow them, and then also the Pacific. So what role has navy power played in russian history this is i think this is the root of of where we can interpret continuity and change and state power as well the role of state power and priorities because you're right there's a very ambiguous point here at the once one part russia is a continental power um the russian leadership itself often the military often the army ground forces obviously often talk about russia as a as a ground and land-based power and we've seen Russia in those terms as well. Uh, at the same time, economically, Russia has, for, for, for extended periods in its history, been almost entirely reliant or, or largely reliant on sea exports. And it's been militarily very vulnerable to sea power. Indeed, the wars that it's, it's won, of course, have been against Napoleon and the big fatherland wars, Napoleon and, and, and Nazi Germany. But the war it has lost, the wars it has lost have been against sea powers. And uh, for instance, the Crimean War, for instance, the Russo-Japanese War. Um, and in many ways, the, the primary contestant against the Russian state over the last 150, 200 years has been a maritime or sea power. First, the British Empire, and then, then, then of course, the United States. And so, so you see this constant ambiguity in Russian history where, yes, it's a, it's a land power and it prioritizes, in many ways, ground forces. At the same time, uh, you see this um, quite extended periods where in which naval power and, more importantly, maritime power have been high high priorities in in russian thinking now i mean again in fact we can see this trajectory over the last 50 or so years because what we're talking about is at the end of the sea at the end of the soviet era you had a a major a major soviet navy ocean going navy that in many ways challenged challenged the us um, and then with the, the 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 dissolution of the Soviet Union, that 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 navy falling into into disrepair and and, um, and indeed a very serious poor, poor condition. Uh, so during the nineteen nineties and the two thousands, but then from really the early twenty tens, I suppose you're talking about a substantial investment um, in, in in Russian maritime and particularly naval power from the twenty ten onwards as part of a wider international trend. So so Russia is like like in many ways the rest of the world, investing in maritime power. So that 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 fifty years is a good indication of the the fluctuations and ambiguity of of, of maritime power for Russia. I mean I just I find it very interesting to note this ambiguity again when Gerasimov uh, spoke to the defense attaches last 
December. So you have a Russian cavalry officer, a Russian tanker, who's chief of general staff, emphasizing three major maritime challenges to Russia in the Northern Sea Route, uh, the development of AUKUS, the, the, the deal between the United States, UK and US for, for nuclear submarines, and challenges around Taiwan. So, so even a Russian ground forces officer as chief of the general staff also points to these, these maritime challenges that are, and sea power challenges uh, that Russia faces. So how does uh, the current Russian leadership, not just Putin, but also Grasimov and the other military leaders, how do they interpret Russia's place as a naval power in the 21st century? What's like their viewpoint on this issue? This is this is one of those the, those questions where we have to, to draw a little line uh, and, and be explicit about what's in the planning and some of the some of the the questions they've had and uh, difficulties they've had implementing this because because in many ways that the russian leadership is is explicit both in statements and, and and strategic planning documents and so on that the intent is to make russia one of the leading seafaring powers in the world now there are various ways of of, of defining this but one of the things you and i will probably discuss uh, for the rest of our conversations is this little balance between naval power and maritime power. So we ought to be seeing these two together, the question of Russia's naval ability, but also the fact that that large parts of the Russian economy depend now on the sea. So, so as we'll come to probably a bit later, um, we see plans for substantial investment, uh, while there are also some, some significant doubts and shortfalls, ongoing debates about what maritime and naval power should look like, but nevertheless, a sustained and major effort to modernize both naval and civilian sea power. Um, that's largely because the Russian leadership sees a geoeconomic competition under, underway. Now, this was something that you and I spoke about, I think, at length in our last discussion. But this geoeconomic competition, Moscow concluded this, came to this conclusion about a decade ago, a bit more now, probably 15 years ago, perhaps we can say, where there would be competition over access to commodities, over transit routes, over access to markets. Uh, and this, in many ways, really obliges Moscow to have a global horizon, to be looking at maritime choke route, uh, choke um, choke points, naval and, and maritime access to 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 the sea, so to speak, um, and the role of access to markets across and through different seas. Um, so, so I think it's become much more important to Russia uh, over the last decade, and the war that 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 we see underway in, uh, against and in Ukraine uh, is is part of that. In many ways, we can see it as as a maritime conflict. Um, the navy, of course, has played an important role in supporting the effort, but also we look at the exports down through the Sea of Azov and the Black Sea and into the Eastern Mediterranean to to access new markets. So high priority from my point of view, um, explicitly stated in, in in not just in the naval parades, but also in the uh, in the strategic planning documents and in the resourcing that's dedicated to it. Now, we touched on this uh, or just a few minutes ago, kind of like the history of Russia being defeated by maritime naval powers. How important is like Russian maritime naval history? Uh, how important is that to the Russian leadership? Uh, understanding of you know naval maritime power and Russia's uh, status as such like a maritime and naval power how important is history in forging like this justification for their uh, their new policy I, I think it's it's very important not 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 purely because of the 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 symbolism that they use i mean some of the aspects for instance maritime power that, that the russians use for 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 their presence they talk of they refer to new new uh new finds hydrocarbon finds in the high north for instance they refer to this as they've named them after marshal zhukov and rokossovsky you know sort of strategic reserves in in russian's maritime literal shores in the in the north so history there's there's a there's a reference to it but from my point, I, I think that the really, the really important and valuable part here is how the Russian leadership uses applied history. So we're looking here about taking the Navy aspects, for instance, to look into how the Russian Navy uses the lessons and the experience of the past to shape an interpretation of, of, of sea power and how you go about achieving it. 
So history features in two ways. One in the, one in the kind of the prestige way or the the, the big symbolism of, of what's going on. But I think more practically and more importantly, you have this, this sense of looking through the application of sea power to determine Russian uh, what concepts are relevant for Russia now, how to deal with various threats. Um, that is important. History is undoubtedly important here. And whenever you talk about the Russian military, you do have to talk about history to interpret the present and the future. What I would say, though, is that really we're looking at, at not so much a, a reliance on history, but as a sea power and, and, and maritime or maritime power as a whole is a present and a future oriented project and problem for the Russian leadership. So we see the symbolism of it. We see some of the lessons being learned through applied history. But really, this isn't a historical this isn't a historical image we should be thinking. We should be thinking now and through the end of this decade, even into the next decade. Now, of course, when dealing with the Russian military and the Russian leadership, often a, a common issue is, is that the Russian understanding of certain aspects of military, geopolitical, and naval maritime power are often quite different from that which most Westerners would be uh, familiar with. So how does the Russian understanding of naval and maritime power contrast with, say, Western concepts, more specifically like American and British concepts uh... well there, there are a couple of good ways of, of, of illustrating this because in, in many ways some of the root discussions are quite similar you know if we look through Russian history we find there's quite a lot of interaction between between the Russians uh, and the Royal Navy um and and a bit and obviously a lot of, of examination um of how uh, the United States has thought about sea power through Mahan and, and, and so on. But I think we can draw three points of reference here, which which make it different. We look at the Russians over the last over the last decade, as I mentioned, uh, in terms of a fourth battle of the Atlantic, that the Russians are building submarines and are going to use them in the same way that that the Germans used them in the first two wars uh, to try and cut our sea lanes of communication. Now, this is quite interesting because this is an echo from the Cold War era. Uh, there's some discussions with CNA and, and the others as well, how there was a policy view that the Russians would use their submarines as in wolf packs to, to cut the convoys. And an analytical line to say that's not what the Russians are busy building or, or exercising for. So we look at a fourth battle of the Atlantic, while the Russians have their own interests in in in, in mind, i.e., defending their strategic submarines, um, defending their own their own shoreline, and so forth. So so there's a sort of what I suppose you could call a mirror imaging problem here is the first thing that we have to be explicit about. Um, but but no doubt they're important category differences also. For instance, there's no such thing in uh, in Russian thought as a naval strategy. So we, while in the US and um, to a degree, I think in the UK, you would have a, the development of a naval strategy, that's not so in, in Russia, that where the Navy, when it comes to war fighting, has has uh, a role to play in the greater uh, the greater overall strategic effort. So, so there are category differences how we would interpret naval strategy, but there are also frames of how of reference about what command of the sea does. So the, the um, command of the sea, Gospodsvonamoria in, in Russian, um, is viewed entirely differently in, in, in many ways, uh, not just now, but in the past, and it's gone through fluctuations, of course. But this is not seen to be the purpose of the Navy. The Navy in many ways is, is, is viewed as being at a disadvantage against a superior enemy almost immediately as soon as this as war breaks out. Um, but command of the sea has to be fought over through combined arms and is is temporary and localized. So we, here again, we use maybe the same the same images or the same conceptual terms, but we mean different things. So you're absolutely right. Important questions. We have to break through break through some mirror imaging here to work out what it is and and try to interpret Russian terms as they would be interpreted in Russian strategy. So no A2AD, um, because there are not enough uh, American servicemen working for, for, for the Russians to, to man the systems and so on. So different concepts for different capabilities. Um, that's where these understandings of naval power again come into it. And I'll, I'll keep I'll keep whacking this nail particularly that we tend to talk about naval power it's really important, I think, that we focus on maritime power, so Russian maritime power as a whole. And this, again, is one of the ways we've not looked at it, I think, in the in the right way. We do discuss this a fair amount in the book. 
Um, but we will tend to focus on Russian naval power, where Moscow will talk much more in terms of, of sea power. Now, how concerned should NATO countries be uh, about Russia naval or maritime power, as you just uh, explained? Well, I, I think we should. Well, concern is an interesting word because it gives us all sorts of scope for, for discussing this. Uh, so I'll I'll take your, your, your invitation there. Thank you, Stephen. It's... I think we underestimate the importance of sea power to Russia. Um, I think we we think of Russian power as quite local or regional, um, whereas actually this this sense of, of of sea power has a much more global horizon. When we look at sea power, we're thinking about the shift of the Russian economy. We're thinking about uh, the importance of icebreakers. We're thinking about the importance of of oil or hydrocarbon transport. Um, and, and I think we should be very aware of how the shipping aspect of this has evolved. Now, when I talk to people in the Royal Navy and the US Navy and, and, and NATO, I don't get the impression that they underestimate Russian naval power at all. They're well aware of, the, of, of submarine, Russian submarine capabilities. They're well aware that Russia has a large surface fleet and a capable surface fleet, um, much of which is not involved in the war against Ukraine. So, so I think that in some senses, some of the right people don't underestimate this. But more broadly, I, I think we tend to focus perhaps in a media or a political way on, on the Kursk, for instance, the tragedy, the, the sinking of the Kursk and with the loss of the, the whole crew back in the late 1990s. But also we look at the Kuznetsov, you know, the, the a fairly elderly uh, aircraft carrying heavy cruiser, um, and, and we look at the loss of the Moskva, and we, we can more or less talk about Russian naval power in, in a one-dimensional way like that. Um, it's certainly true that there's an obsolescence to parts of the Russian fleet. Uh, and, uh, uh, there's a there's a division of, of funds across four fleets, uh, four and a half fleets, including the Caspian Flotilla, which impacts on, on modernization processes and so on. And of course, there is indecision and debate, which, which drives plans backwards and forwards. So you see incompletion in certain aspects. But, but, but in many ways, uh, these questions of obsolescence and, and division of funds are a little bit misleading because the Russian Navy has a um, significant capability. The maritime ability of Russia is, is what we should be looking at more broadly. And, and that's, a, that's a strategic question that we, we really mustn't underestimate. That should be a concern because that's how Russia has sought to sustain its economy, build defense engagement, reach out across the world. I mean, we're talking really about going down to Antarctica. We're talking about building exercises with China. We're talking about um, shaping the northern sea route as an internal waterway. So this is the sort of thing that should concern us. Uh, I really like the point you made, how there's that division between say the defense analysts and military members who who uh, focus on russia but then from the political and the media aspect russia's almost like this irrelevant power or they can't do anything i've noticed this very much so in this division of analysis of the war in ukraine where the media and the political establishment is almost like oh the russians they can't do anything right whereas the the military analysts uh, that I've been paying attention to, they're saying, well, no, but of course, Ukraine and Russia, they're not fighting the way that we would fight. So trying to interpret it through that lens is not correct. It's just they're fighting the war uh, their way and what works best for them under their circumstances. And I think this gets back to the mirror image that you mentioned before, where somehow if a military or, a, in this case, a maritime naval power doesn't do things our way, then somehow they're incompetent, not fully capable. And it's, uh, well, that creates a bit of a blind, potential blind spot where you can, you know, be caught off guard. Yeah, I think this is this is right. And we have, um, I mean, there are, there are a range of other sort of, let's, let's call them strategic questions when we look at the Russian Navy, no, look, it's certainly possible to say, and, and some of the chapters deal with this in, in the book, that the, the Russian Navy, as I mentioned, has some some obsolete aspects to it, and, and there are certain flaws and so on, and they approach things differently to us. It's much more a question of, of mass and firepower, for instance. 
But but the Russian Navy, for instance, I think one of the things we should be looking for uh, and watching out for is is the use of the Navy to str- because they have large numbers of ships is to stretch attention and stretch and, and deploy in different ways and put pressure on on the smaller and more exquisite technology, exquisitely technological aspects of, of Western navies, which are smaller in scale, apart from, of course, the US to a degree. So it then becomes a question of defense engagement and deployment and deterrence rather than combat. And if we end up asserting freedom of operations and that kind of thing, we may find ourselves in in, in interesting uh, statecraft waters with the Russians. So it's not purely about combat. It's not purely about the, the, the firepower aspect of this. But yes, when you look at perhaps some of our naval approaches and our warfighting approaches, it's a question of, of exquisite technology and precision, and, and whereas the Russians much more look at, at mass and firepower. And that, that 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 will continue, I think, over the, over the foreseeable future. Now, we were talking about how NATO or many analysts kept thinking about the Russian Navy trying to pull off like another battle of the Atlantic, kind of similar to what Germany tried to do in the two world wars. But uh, what are the actual four principal missions of the Russian Navy that are mentioned in the book? Well, I think this is this is a, a a very interesting challenge for 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 us to interpret because the missions are set out. Um, there is a question of evolution in our minds. Generally speaking, we think of Russia as a as a as a, dare I say almost as a coastal defense force, and that's understandable because coastal defense and naval aviation and so on have an important role to play um, in, in Russian thinking. And um, but what what we tend to see also alongside the aspects I've just mentioned of deployability and range across the the world and defense defense engagement there are a number of 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 shifts in russian thinking that we get to in the book and we talk about an increasing offensive and increasingly offensive role for the navy so we're not just talking about shore defense in in sort of sporting terms you might call this the jab to sort of to to set up distance um you're also talking about a promotion of to to a high priority of the the intent to destroy enemy land-based facilities at long range so while we might think of the the climactic battle at sea um, with 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 vessels shooting at each other and trying to knock each other out, actually the Russian Navy really tends to support um, a long range strike capability against land based facilities. So command facilities, command posts, major economic positions, political uh, policy making nodes. Um, that's the first one. Then the second is to ensure the sustainability of Russia's ballistic missile submarines. So strategic deterrence. This is the this is probably the the one we might come back to every so often. Uh, a third, of course, is to destroy enemy uh, related to to that destroy enemy anti submarine warfare capabilities and other forces. Yes, coastal facilities, um, and then we're looking at, at combat support for the for the for the out for the the ground forces. So the deployment of firepower on shore. So in many ways, it's a it's a bit of a. I mentioned how we use or the Russian Navy uh, does, and we should use. Uh, history, applied history to learn how they evolve. In many ways, you could talk about a, a, a neo-Gorshkovian or a, a, an echo of Gorshkov's idea of the fleet against the shore. That's probably how we should think about it best. Fleet against the shore with conventional and strategic deterrence. So more fleet uh, against the shore rather than fleet against fleet, which would be more of the traditional British-American uh, approach. Yes, that's what I, I think so. That's what we should be looking for. I mean, the fleet against the fleet bit, I that there are questions about the technological capabilities. There's questions about uh, about how that is implemented. So I would see the fleet against fleet bit as an activity rotor in many ways. The deployment of ships in order to keep our ships busy and expensive um, and to put our navies under an activity pressure in many ways. But the war, the war fighting role is really fleet against shore. Now, you talked about applied history, and we have talked about history before in this uh, discussion, but uh, the Russian Navy and even the Russian military as a whole, they often have to draw on two areas of traditions, both the old Tsarist, but also the Soviet tradition. And one of the uh, interesting aspects, because getting back to the political and naval aspect, people still seem to think that the Soviet Union is still around. I think one of a State Department official even uh, incorrectly said, well, the Soviet Union is invading Ukraine and 
that looked a little embarrassing for the uh, for the uh, American administration at the time. But yeah, what does the Russian Navy owe in many ways to both the Tsarist and the Soviet legacy, the contemporary Russian Navy? The contemporary Russian Navy, to, to my mind, owes, uh, well, if most of it comes from any roots it has come from the Soviet era. Okay, yes, there are traditions, and you know you have important, the important symbolic roles of of admirals like Ushakov and so on. But really, you're looking at a, a quite a significant break um, at the end of the Tsarist era, for instance, with the the the, the loss of the the Russo-Japanese fleet uh, in the in the Russo-Japanese war, and the inability really to build itself back up before World War One, and then the revolution. I mean, now we can talk a bit about Russian naval imperial Russian naval traditions, but but to my mind, it's more valuable, I think, to talk from the early Soviet era. Because that's where you have really the emphasis on submarines. That's where you have the emphasis on on um, also uh, the 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 role that the, the navy plays within broader strategic thinking. Um, and then, of course, we're coming through to the the the, the period of uh, Admiral Gorshkov, the primarily into the the seventies and the early eighties, where he built this 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 uh, navy with a global horizon. So, so that's where the link. We have a link back to the early Soviet era, which is the primacy, you know, in many ways, of submarines uh, in in Russian thought and submarine uh, subsurface expertise. But also the late Soviet echo in terms of Gorshkov's approach to try to have a global horizon in terms of understanding of of the nature of dealing with security threats, but also um, diplomatic engagement and and so on. So, so for me, we're looking at those two those two eras of the Soviet period. And then we're now, if they're the roots, we see the branches now emerging really of, of, of an independent Russian tradition, which is um, which is certainly being debated about kind of the kind of navy that they need, uh, but also is taking shape much more for a a hydro a sea based hydrocarbon economy for the next for the foreseeable future. Now. What do we know about? We have discussed a little bit about this, but what do we know about possible strat, uh, naval strategies against NATO in the case of a potential war? And we just got through like how they would try to use their numbers to try to divert uh, NATO's attention, and also in terms of actual military action, more uh, fleet against the shore. Is there anything else you want to add onto that uh, issue? Onto that uh, question? I think the the only thing I would probably underline here is is the use of um, the, the Navy's role as part of the strategic deterrent. So if we think about, let's call it um, deployment engagement and defense engagement further afield, uh, and then the fleet against shore, we're part of that that triad would be adding the strategic deterrence aspect to it. I I think we have to consider that as as part of their 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 um, their strategic approach to us. Now speaking of strategic deterrence, uh, a major aspect of Russian military thinking against NATO is also using nuclear deterrence. What role does what role does that have in terms of the navy and maritime power? I think it's a it's again this is this is that point where I'm talking about that that triad between um, defense deployment and engagement, uh, fleet against shore and nuclear uh, and the nuclear deterrence aspect because in many ways. While we've seen the the modernization of Russian armed forces over the last decade, the investment and so on and that, that that's um, that that prepared them for to a degree uh, Ukraine and then has been found um, to 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 require more, so to speak. Uh, one of the things that's been a pro- constant priority is the modernization of the, the the nuclear deterrent, and the navy, of course, has been part of that. So, right at the very right at the very top, we must always be talking in many ways about the navy's role in 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 strategic deterrence. I mean, as I as I'm emphasizing, you know, there are multiple parts to this. We must we must really be looking in general terms at maritime, and within that, the navy has a role. But overarching this, when it comes to security, is that question of of the uh, of submarine, uh, the the strategic deterrent in uh, launch from submarines. Now, you did talk about how part of this is that Russia is economically. Uh not dependent, but it's uh, a major part of its economy now is based off of maritime trade. And 
one that we discussed in our last discussion and has also become part of much of the in uh, world news is the importance of grain exports from Russia. So how does this play in? How does this connect with Russian maritime strategy and naval power? Well, it, there's there's a duality to it. Well, just a quick point about about before I come to grain, please let's keep in mind the oil and gas being being transported by sea as well i mean the building of, of oil tankers the building of, of lng term infrastructure and so on so indeed a lot of the war has accelerated russia's dependence on the sea in fact it was while the book was in publication process you know we were watching this thinking how how actually in many ways the war doesn't undermine this it accelerates the purpose so while you have a strategic a political and economic pivot to asia uh what you find, and I say Asia, in because Russia still calls it the Asia-Pacific region, to that we should be adding not just the the, the question of of um, hydrocarbons to 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 India, for instance, or or, um, or 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 supply chains with with China, but we're also looking at the Middle East and North Africa, and and so so Russia's engagement with with uh, with these regions is primarily taking shape by by sea now. And that's the same for grain as it is for, uh, for for hydrocarbons. Now, also one area Russia is trying to expand its uh, maritime uh, power is in the northern sea route, and that's in the Arctic Ocean, correct? Uh, well, the Russians treat this as as part of uh, their internal waterway. So there is there's some discussion about how far uh, the littoral goes, as you'll as you'll know, and then whether the Northern Sea Route is part of the Global Commons and and so on. So so yes, uh, uh, Russia is very clear that the Northern Sea Route is the Russian leadership is very clear that the Northern Sea Route is an internal Russian waterway. Uh, and you're right. I mean, there's there's a uh, there's an extended discussion to be had on this. Uh, you'll you'll remember we we touched on this bit in our our earlier conversation. I think um, the Northern Sea Route is, is is essentially Moscow sees it as its future and is investing heavily in it. So while they're waging their 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 campaign against Ukraine, at the same time last year they were shaping a strategy for the development of the Northern Sea Route to 2035 and resourcing it and launching a nuclear icebreaker and 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 so on. So the effort that goes into the Northern Sea Route is is strategic, and in many ways it, it's it's a it's their priority for the future. It's that not only is the region and the hydrocarbons and so on the strategic reserves, as I mentioned, the, the Zhukov and Rokossovsky fields. This is also a means of driving uh, driving the economy. Uh, of building towards uh, building the economy as a whole, uh, but also connecting Russia to the, the rest of the world, not just east-west, of course, but north-south as well. So what we're talking about here is infrastructure linking uh, the high north with Iran and with the Caspian Sea and uh, effectively taking it down to the Indian Ocean. So the Northern Sea Route plays and, and, and development of the high north plays a very, very significant role in Russian Russian strategic uh, thinking and action. Um, in many ways, uh, Moscow is relying quite heavily on this. Uh, and that, of course, is not to underestimate the scale of the problem that the Russians have. You know, in many ways, the, the infrastructure there is limited, is decrepit. Uh, it will require vast investments to 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 make it function but it's exactly what we see moscow trying to implement and, and therefore the navy plays an important role in this uh, protecting the protecting the new sites protecting the port infrastructure uh, protecting the trading the trade route and, and so on so so the, these parts again in many ways it's, there's a dual purpose aspect to this of maritime power and naval power coming to the the defensive economic interests yes i just very recently uh even read about how China is trying to invest in this as well. And it just made me immediately think of what I was just reading in the book and what we were going to be discussing in this interview. Yeah. I mean, this is this is something that I think has been underway for for some time. You know, there were there were discussions. Medvedev had discussions with that with the Chinese about securing investment in the north and so on. I know people often ask, won't there be competition between the Russians and the Chinese in the high north? Uh, and the answer to that, to a degree, is 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 yes and no. I mean, it's one of those unfortunate, ambiguous answers that people don't find very satisfactory. That there's Chinese investment, but uh, Moscow has sought Chinese investment. But at the same time, very much protects its interests, and you know you might have seen some of the legislation that the very the constant tightening of legislation that Moscow has put in for um, for accessing that 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 Northern Sea Route. 
Yes, and it kind of comes up to a, a presumption I, I constantly see in the media and a lot of the political analysis that somehow there's going to be a repeat of the Sino-Soviet split. But yet, I've also noticed that a lot of experts, most notably uh, Sergei Rachenko, who's a historian of the Soviet period, he kind of notes that, no, both Russia and China, they both kind of saw how that affected them. And they're actually trying to avoid, you know, something akin to the Sino-Soviet split, because then that just diverted to attention from the Soviet of the Soviet Union and then and so forth. So it's not quite the same thing. And also there's no there's none of the ideological aspect of, well, who's who's more communist, who's the better Marxist this time? It's actually no, we have common interests. So you know, yeah, they may clash, but we'll try to smooth those differences out as much as possible. I this is I, I think this is one of those those very interesting questions which we can we can address from a number of different angles i mean watching the watching the growth of of over the last 15 20 years um of of economic ties between russia and china and technological development ties and and various others there's no question that there are slight differences in emphasis between between the two leaderships of course there are but uh in many ways when i hear people talk about a Sino-Soviet, or you know, split as as coming forth today as well. What I what I hear is wishful thinking, that the problem just goes away of its own accord, um, and and that I I must say I'm I, I don't think is a sound basis for assessing our strategic the strategic challenges that face us over the next few years. Um, in many ways, actually, what we see with what we came up with, what we found during the during research and preparation of the book was that. The planning emphasis not only draws Russia into this this relationship more more deeply, but also takes Russia. It, it gives you a horizon into into how Russia interprets the next this the rest of this century as being a the twenty first century is is a Pacific century. Um, and, and two of the main strategic problems that they mentioned, I, I mentioned Gerasimov earlier. Uh, one is over the, the the deal for nuclear submarines with Australia, AUKUS, and the other is the the U.S. pressure on China and Taiwan. I find this this very interesting to see how Moscow interprets these questions, and some of that's in the book. Yeah, a related question, and uh, if you'd like to comment on this, I often also see this one thing where Russia will somehow be like a puppet of China, kind of like how China in the early period was interpreted as a puppet of the Soviet Union, but from what I've I've heard and read from experts in the field, it's just no, because China realizes that's what what caused the Sino-Soviet split. So if they treat the Russians the same way, that's going to cause a split, and that's going to make them have to fight both the Russians and the Americans at the same time. So it just seems like it's just we can't get out of the Cold War paradigm and also just wishful thinking, as you just mentioned. Yeah, I, I think there's um, those two points that you mentioned, Stephen, are very are very important to this. That that we tend to see Russia in a Cold War aspect, uh, and we we tend to see it just going away of its own its own accord. And this this part of of well, Russia will just become a um, a, a junior partner of of China. Um, when I look at Russian futures and foresight thinking, which is a little bit of what, what the book does, but is part of a new new project, it's it's very interesting to see how their two the two of their main foresight uh, scenarios are either a unipolar world dominated by the U.S. and force, which in many ways keeps the Chinese and the Russians uh, on, on a similar on a similar path, or a, or a more bipolar world divided between the U.S. and China. So. You know, and when we've, you know, there's a lot to be said about the Russo-Chinese relationship, um, which is a little bit off off our subject. But but when you when you see this this foresight, you you can interpret how Russia sees the shifting pan, the shifting structure of the international architecture, and where it tends to where the leadership tends to view its, you know, the the the, the overall trajectory. And and I think this is one of the one of the one of the reasons why well, it is one of the reasons why we focused on this book is because. The, the world is becoming more and more maritime dominated and the the, the you know the, the lines that come through are that more trade goes by sea more uh, more and more of the world's population is is on the shoreline or affected by the sea and and in many ways that's that's where we that's where we see um you know a, a russo chinese relationship being built also in in maritime aspects yes and 
part of this maritime aspect of the world, Russia is actually trying to get into the civilian shipbuilding business. So it's not just purely naval military power. It's also civilian uh, maritime uh, Absolutely. abilities. Uh, could you possibly talk about that? Absolutely. Uh, this is this is very much uh, uh, an important question for, for for our thinking about the strategic shift in in Moscow's thinking about about moving away from being perhaps a, a land power purely and over time moving towards becoming the seafaring nation. Uh, you'll note I don't use the terms sea power or one word or sea power two words, which we would often use to to describe a land power that uses its navy, a seafaring nation. That, uh, that that depends in many ways on its ability to build not just warships but but also a civilian um, uh, a civilian capability and Putin is is quite explicit as are the strategic planning documents of development of marine resources science and and, and science and geographical research hydrography um, fishing and resources uh, as well as the hydrocarbons of course that we mentioned so so it's 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 research it's uh it's resources focused it's um it's this this kind of capability is 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 the sort of thing that we we should be looking at not just submarines but also uh russia's icebreaker capability uh the russia russia's ability to build tankers and to build port infrastructure these are these are the strategic questions of course the the submarines and, and the nuclear deterrent is a strategic question but russia's ability to build its civilian uh civilian marine capability is 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 i think one that is really often overlooked now we did touch on asia a bit and we did talk a lot about china uh how does how does asia, the rest of asia like particularly like india because india is another major mm -hmm. uh, uh uh not necessarily ally but a, a, another asian power that has a rising aging uh, asian power that has actually had close relationships with uh with russia and even earlier with the soviet union in fact uh, i often have to explain to people when the sino-soviet split happened one of the main beneficiaries of it was india because the soviet union improved relationship like increased relationships with the uh with india so how does like this play into and of course india has also been uh uh, increasing trade with uh, uh, Russia since uh, the start of the Ukraine war and sanctions plate Western sanctions were placed on Russia. So how does like India and some other areas of Asia figure in Russia's maritime strategy? So this is this is an excellent question. Thank you. It's a, it's because two two things immediately come from it. First of all, when we talk about the war in Ukraine, the implications of of, of Moscow's war against Ukraine. There are uh, two things to bear in mind. First, of course, this didn't begin in 2022. Um, we can debate when, when it started, but really we're looking at 2014, and that's when we saw the beginning of sanctions, really the more important sanctions, which which obliged a Russian diversification uh, of, of various parts of its economy. So in the second half of the 2010s, we already see Moscow doing deals and port infrastructure deals and, and so on, reaching out into the Indian Ocean. I, I think that one of the big the big foresight aspects of, of, of what we're looking at here is 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 the growth in, in Russian interest in the Indian Ocean. We focus for obvious reasons on the Mediterranean, on the Black Sea, on the, the Northern Sea Route, but I, but I think we ought to be looking at, at the Northern, at the Indian Ocean. Uh, indeed, the Russian Navy and and the, the the head of the Russian Navy has just been to uh, Myanmar and, and and the Russian Navy just been having uh, exercises in Bangladesh, so so we see this this interest not just India but also areas where you have growing markets, and again I bring it back to that discussion we had previously about that that uh, the other book of of Russian grand strategy and near of, of of great power competition or global power competition, the growth of Russian economic interests in the Indian Ocean is something that we're seeing tied now with also with uh, with maritime interests and naval interests. So we're looking at, at at a variety of things, really a trajectory that began before the war in Ukraine in terms of diversification of the the economy, a 
an acceleration of that since 2014 and then a further acceleration since 2022, whether we're talking India, Bangladesh, um, whether we're talking uh, also um, actually further afield in, in the Indian Ocean. So this, in my mind, is part of the the, the discussion that we, we haven't looked at in, the, in our debate about Russian power. And that's one of the things we try and advocate for where we should the questions we should look for in the future now what is kind of the future trajectory of russian uh, maritime power based on the available evidence and of course nobody can predict the future 100 uh, but what does the trajectory seem to indicate based on the evidence available to us if we take this again in that site site duality the first of, of of strategy and power and the purpose behind these these books is is to look at, at Russia's assumptions about the future, the Russian leadership's assumptions about the future, how it then plans for those, you know, builds plans on those assumptions, and then shapes through in in implementation. And of course, all three aspects of this are, are very difficult, as you said. There's it's difficult to difficult to pred- make predictions, especially about the future, is the the the, the often quoted line. Um, so of course you're looking at what Clausewitz would have called the fog and friction, the fog of peering into the future and not being able to see very far, but also the friction of future events. But let's let's take it with with Moscow's intent to begin with. It's a very clear and consistent and persistent prioritization of developing an economic um, and a maritime capability to sustain the economy. So. Uh, investment in both the navy and in the civilian capabilities and what we're talking about is not just building ships that means investing all the way deep into modernizing and building new shipbuilding infrastructure modernizing shipyards export infrastructure for hydrocarbons and commodities so all the way all the way through really from from building ships and missiles to to building export infrastructure this is this is a this is clearly a priority there's there's no change at all visible in in the Russian leadership as I mentioned last year uh, they're emphasizing uh, and they developed and an, the Northern Sea Route development strategy to 2035 the maritime there's a recent maritime uh, doctrine emphasizing again towards through the end of the doc this decade into the next um, so we're looking at, at a persistent prioritization and the resources that have been dedicated to that over the last decade are reaping resources. So we should expect to see a growth in Russian civil and, and, and naval power. We should expect to see a growth in capability to export by the sea. Um, we should expect, because of the war, uh, the Navy to be obliged to take a larger role um, while the ground forces are being rebuilt and reorganized. Um, but also because the, the the economic roles, the economic aspects demand the navy out are out protecting Russian naval interests as well. So I think you'll see the navy going further afield, not to be established a permanent presence across the globe, but to to make their presence felt across the globe. So defence engagement and diplomacy, as I said, um, and and this accelerated net maritime emphasis now. Will there be will there be debates about the impact of the war on the navy? Un- undoubtedly, Stephen. Yes, of course, because there's a permanent debate about it. In fact, the, the events of the war are only going to 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 emphasise that debate. Do they need to modernise some of the old big ships like the, along like like the Muskvar, which lots of money was spent on, and you know, the Nakhimov, for instance? Will, will the investment go into that, or will it go into a different kind of ship? Will there be a value for aircraft carriers or not? These debates will rock backwards and forwards, um, but I think we have a we have a view for the for the next uh, short to medium term of of a growth in Russian uh, use of the sea for state power. This has been a very uh, very fascinating and enlightening uh, discussion. Do you have any uh, final thoughts? Uh, maybe cover on anything we didn't touch on in the book. Well. Uh, we've we've had a very wide ranging conversation. Thank you uh, for having me again. I mean, I, I suppose I would maybe conclude like this: that the, our thinking about Russian Russian power needs to undergo a fundamental change. That's not to say that Russia is becoming in you know, twenty twenty four a sea power in the way that we would think of it. Speaking as a as a Brit that thinks of of, of maritime power as integral to our our culture and our democracy and and so on and so forth, but 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 we need to think about ways of how russian power is evolving as a result of the war a but also as a result of longer term state effort 
and I think this is going to require new some new vocabulary. Um, I think we should be thinking about Russia as a polar power, for instance, not just the high north and the Arctic, of course, but as in Russian involvement in Antarctica. This is a north-south question as well as east-west. And I think we should be looking to interpret Russian competition in the global commons. These are these are the, probably the primary questions about how Russia is shaping its interests as a with a Moscow is shaping Russian interests as a global as a global player. Um, it, it will it will affect everything we have to do with Russia, whether it's defense, whether it's deterrence, or n- not immediately likely for the time being, but but whether it's dialogue. Um, and and trying to think about Russia in terms of well, okay, yes, considerable Russian power at land. Um, in terms of rebuilding ground forces and effort to ground forces, but but that that role of other aspects of Russian Russian power, including maritime, uh, I think build a more three dimensional and more forward looking aspect of of understanding Russian power. Do, not and in order to be clear, not only its strengths but also its weaknesses, and that the how we shape and how Moscow tries to deal with those strengths and weaknesses and and implement a strategy. Yes, uh, even being a global power uh, or player, as you said, I was even just recently reading about how, in some ways, French influence in Africa has just kind of evaporated, and now Russia has kind of moved in. Now, that doesn't mean like they're puppets of Moscow, like, say, during like the Cold War era, but no, it means their presence is being felt now, like in, I believe it was in Sudan, Mali, and a few other African countries that... Unfortunately, I can't remember off the top of my head. For forget me, it's been a long week. <laughs> but we can, but we can. I mean, you're absolutely right. And we can look to you know the, the growing Russian relationship with Iran. We look to the growing, growing Russian relationship with with the Gulf. Um, you know, there's so much rolls out of where we're going. So many, so many important changes and or ev- evolutions. Let's call them. Um, when, when we're looking at interpreting the nature of power, the implications this has for trade routes, this, the implications it has for um, for freedom of navigation, as I mentioned earlier, the implications it has for uh, search and rescue, for instance. Um, so it opens up so many sort of detailed questions, but the overarching one is of 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 um, of strategic shift in in international affairs that moscow is trying to drive and we ought to be looking at russia's role alongside in in yes as you say in in um well not only in north africa but but in sub-saharan africa but in organizations like opec plus two we should be looking at you know russian dynamic to, you know to what extent are they able to coordinate and integrate you know, their coordinate their activities with opec plus um to drive a russian agenda i mean uh the extent to which russia will seek to become more active in the pacific as well yeah and then there's also BRICS, which has also been getting some attention and a lot of the political and media analysts uh do you have any thoughts on on how that will affect uh russian influence uh well i i would say it's that 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 constant effort to be reaching out to a global audience yes i mean i i think there are always questions for you know russia's role in in reaching out again i mentioned that that sense of strengths and weaknesses but but frankly we can we can talk about strengths and weaknesses for the rest of the you know the rest of the week stephen is what i want to get at is is intent and strategy and or priorities and resources dedicated to it and certainly the russians are very clear about their interest in brics yes um brics and 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 opec plus i would say probably two of the, the 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 most important formats in this sense it will will they achieve everything they want no of course not um but but the agenda is set out and that's where we need to be i think aware of of how persistent and consistent moscow has been in 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 pursuing an agenda that that is that is pretty long long range in terms of time timelines no really we're looking at at an agenda that comes in many ways that was that was shaped in was shaped in the mid to late 2000s and and my concern primary concern here is that that when you when you listen to to putin's speeches or 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 those of other senior officials that they think their foresight is being you know their foresight from 2007 2012 2013 2015 is being proven correct that's that 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 should i think come as as a concern to people Uh, because i think in london post people would say well it's complete failed um, and it just drives us into completely different galaxies, which become uninterpretable to each other. 
that that's a positive danger. Yeah, I remember that was also a major point that we made in our last uh, interview about Russian uh, grand strategy as a whole. And uh, yes, we could probably continue this discussion uh, for the rest of the week, as you said, because there's just so much to discuss. Uh, well, uh, we always like to end our uh, our uh, interviews by asking our guests, what are you working on now? Well, I'm working on what, what I suppose in, in broader terms is 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 another another angle of, of, of interpreting Russian strategy and power. I'm looking at Russian military strategy and how that's evolved and what the key questions are for, for interpreting continuity and change in that. So so is there is there a Russian way in war is what I'm what I'm looking at. I mean this was something that I I shaped again a little bit on the back of these these two books as well. Um and another one called Power in Modern Russia, uh, which is really trying to see how we can interpret that continuity and change over the longer term, the preparation for war, the way that Moscow goes to war. And, and, and now that, of course, Moscow's launched this assault, renewed assault on on Ukraine, what it means for implications heading out towards the rest of you know, the, the, the 2030s. So I'm, I'm working on, on the Russian way in war. There will be a bit of maritime in it. Uh, there will be a bit of grand strategy in it, but it's, it's primarily focused on, on the military aspects. Well, uh, maybe when you get done with that, we can have you back on for a third uh, interview. I'd be delighted. Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, Andrew Monaghan, uh, thank you for joining us on the New Books Network. Thank you for having me, Stephen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the New Books Network. I am your host, Stephen Sakevich. Until next time.